You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hey folks, welcome back. We have an incredible show for you. Kyle McHugh is a true superhero in our industry. He brings hospitality and business together in a seamless way with his entrepreneurial spirit and his deep hospitality values. He's a thoughtful leader, compassionate to all, a brilliant idea starter with a big heart, and he's not afraid to roll up his sleeves and do the work. Kyle shares with us his personal journey, what it was like to be raised by a single mom as an auntie, and he shares with us his time spent at Georgetown University, his time as a bartender, and his mission to continue his life's work to give back to our community. So sit back, relax, grab your favorite cocktail, and enjoy this very special show. Welcome, Kyle. Julia and I are so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you. I am very excited to be here. Uh, Long-time listener and uh, (laughs) first-time guest. That's amazing. We've been waiting for this. This has been the highlight of the month, waiting for (laughs) Yes, doing this recording. Flattery will get you everywhere, ladies. <laughs> Learned cool. along the way. I mean, come on. It's got it's got to be something, right? That helps us get through. Absolutely. Well, you know, Kyle, I know that you've had a long, rich career within the beverage industry and you really have been in just about every uh, facet of the industry as well, whether it's working for a supplier, working for a distributor, um, working in a restaurant, working in a bar. And currently, you know, um, you are leading the USBG. And so we would love to know a bit about your journey and what brought you into the beverage world. Sure. Yeah. Let me give you the as abridged aversion as I can, um, because it seems like uh, eons ago, I guess, that it started. Um, Grew up in a household with my mother and my oldest aunt of eight kids and grandma. So very strong uh, maternal household for sure. Only child, single mom. Mom worked restaurants. It's all she ever wanted to do. She started uh, waitressing at the Rinkside Cafe at the skating rink at uh, the mall, one of the malls in downtown Portland. And we're from a fairly rural part of Washington. We lived in Battleground, Washington. So not far outside of uh, Portland city limits, but a good 45 minutes to an hour drive for her to go to work. But that's all she ever wanted to do leaving high school, uh, as she will say, not the best of, of students. Um, and uh, at one point she decided uh, you know, to start a family of her own. And that was me. Um, so I grew up going to visit my mom at the restaurants she worked and um, you know, watching her work and feeling very much at home in that space. And I never envisioned that would be necessarily my path. Um, but uh 
but it was a big part of my upbringing, uh, being around her and seeing that. And she she bartended uh, a fair amount as well as as serving. But serving was always her first passion, actually, of the two. So when I went to school, when I left Washington State and I moved to Washington D.C. Uh, to go to university for undergrad. Um, I had a work study job. It was part of my package and I worked in an office and it was very boring. It was not for me. It was answering phones and filing and it just drove me nuts. So uh, after studying abroad, I came back and went to something I knew. I went to restaurants. Uh, I went to get hired uh, as a doorman, as a host slash bouncer, uh, but a doorman for the Clyde's restaurant group at, at the place called the tombs, which is right off of the Georgetown campus where I went to school. And, um, very strange anecdote, but it was the day after Super Bowl Sunday in 97, this is 98, I guess, January. And uh, I know this because the night of Super Bowl Sunday, my friends and I got jumped by some local hooligans uh, coming out of the local uh, shawarma shop right around the corner from our house. And they were looking for a fight. It's the only fight I've ever been in in my life. Um, the three of them uh, b- kicked out one of my teeth and got <gasps> me a, oh a black God. eye. That's a terrible I was, story. Wait, what I the heck? Just, <laughs> I have to jump in. I mean, when you said you were like host slash bouncer, I couldn't see you like hurting a fly. No. And then you uh. tell me that you got jumped. I could, cannot even believe that. Who are these guys? And, and we're going to track they them live? down. It's coming full circle. It's a definitely. So this happens. I have my interview scheduled the next day and I'm missing a tooth. It's one of my front teeth. This one's fake right here uh, for those uh, who can't see that in a visual. Uh, one of my front teeth is fake and, and I have this huge black eye. And what am I going to do? I'm not going to go to the interview. I need a job. I just got back from taking this amazing international tour. So I go in and meet with the, the manager who's hiring, who's a former, you're never retired from the Marines, right? But he uh, was an active duty Marine, no longer active duty. And he looks at me and he laughs and he's like, how many of them were there? Well, there were three. Did you get any licks in? And I'm like, a little bit after the, the aftermath. He's like, you're hired. That was the entire interview. That's what started my professional career of my own in hospitality was there were three guys I got bloodied and uh, lived to tell the tale went to the interview that way my god you got some street cred that way yeah I got a little note to self don't cancel the interview because you have a black eye well not for that particular role at the very least right (laughs) Uh, for those who don't know I'm 6'3 I was uh, 220 pounds uh, at that point so I was a former crew I was on the crew team at Georgetown my freshman year I played sports all through high school so it was a big guy Uh, it was all worked out for the role Uh, I did that role for a while then I eventually I back weighted I front weighted I was asked to be a bartender my senior senior year, um, went into, did some management for them, uh, was asked if I was interested to be the GM because the GM was leaving right as I graduated. And I said, I, I got to go try some other things, guys, but thank you so much. Um, moved to Los Angeles, worked for entertainment PR, uh, not a good fit, worked for MTV in the finance department of MTV. Fun, not cool. a good fit, super fun, not a great fit. Um, went back to restaurants. It's what I knew, went to work for Houston's restaurants in Los Angeles, uh, which is an incredible place. You, you know, all fresh. Uh, everything in the kitchen was scratched, with the exception of salsa. I'll tell a company secret: it's paste picante sauce, uh, real, you know, picante sauce made in San Antonio by people who know. Uh, so that was the only thing in the house that was not, uh, in some way, scratched. And the bar was too. The bar was 100% fresh juice to order, which in 1999 was unheard of. And I'm making margaritas from scratch. You're not even allowed to pre-cut a lime to garnish 
a margarita. And uh, at first I got hired as a server. They're like, somebody didn't call in or somebody couldn't come into Barton. Can you work the service well? Bring it. And I got my butt handed to me in the service well that first night, as people often do. But I learned how to get very fast making fresh juice drinks long before it was cool. And I worked at three different Houstons in L.A., uh, where I was. And then I moved, got transferred as a manager. By then I was running bars for them as a manager. They transferred me to Chicago. And that was 2001. I arrived a month before the towers fell. And uh, obviously our, our worlds changed forever. Um, but I was a service manager, bar manager, and then service manager for Houston's. Uh, they kind of chewed me up as a manager, went to open the Weber Grill restaurant. Um, as I went into teaching for Kaplan, I was teaching test prep for Kaplan, all different sorts of standardized testing. And then at, at doing that at nights and, and alternating with my bar shifts, but I was an opening bartender for the Weber Grill restaurant in Chicago, their big showcase city block long restaurant, um, ended up becoming their beverage director for the whole company. We opened a few restaurants, closed a few restaurants, was there five years. And uh, in the downturn economy of 07 was laid off and uh, I'd gotten my certified sommelier by that point at my first two levels of sommelier um, and, uh, and decided I would do my own thing. Opened up my own liquor store called Drinks Over Dearborn, mm -hmm. which was right downtown Chicago as I had a consulting company that I had started back in the dawn of bar consulting and event consulting called The Booze Hound. Mm -hmm. And um, we were doing a lot of work. That's when I first met Bridget. Um, Bridget had come to Weber Grill. Yeah, uh, I remember that. And in her new role with Southern Wine and Spirits uh, at the time before it was Southern Glazers. And I knew what a Hawthorne strainer was properly called. And she was oh my shocked. God. I was so excited, folks. I mean, Kyle was one of the first um, beverage nerds that I met in the city of Chicago. And it was in 2005. And I'll never forget walking into the Weber Grill. And I think I was probably creating some cocktails on your menu that day, whatever it might have been. And I remember you took one look at my toolkit, which I would always carry my bar tools. And he knew it every one of them were. And in that time, that was a big deal. Like he knows what a Hawthorne strainer is. He's excited that I have a muddler. He's not mad at me that I'm bringing in a muddler. <laughs> and I think we've been friends ever since. That is so cool. <laughs> yeah. Fast mm -hmm. friendship. Mm -hmm. um, did my own thing for about five years. Uh, Diageo came calling and uh, offered me the role of master of whiskey uh, based out of Chicago. Um, so I got to travel all over the world and learn about great distilleries and whiskey production, became a certified distiller uh, on the job with them, representing incredible brands. Um, that role changed and uh, was offered another role that I wasn't as comfortable with. And so I, then I went to work for my current employer, which is Samson and Surrey, which is this incredible portfolio of craft brands. So I went from the largest spirits company in the world to a, an upstart boutique craft spirits company where I run uh, education and um, everything advocacy, a team of brand ambassadors uh, across the globe. So uh, very entrepreneurial for somebody who has spent a lot of time in entrepreneurial space. And that's my long winded journey of how I got here today. That's what? amazing. It really is. And it, and I know that you have a great passion for our industry and you have great empathy for our industry as well. You know, you're always looking out um, for everyone that you work with. Uh, you're always looking to bring the next generation of beverage professionals to, to a great level of hospitality and service. And I know that you've done a lot of this through the USBG. Can you tell us a, a bit about your relationship with the USBG and how that's been over the years and where you are currently today um, within, within the organization? 
Sure. So uh, I learned about the USBG from Bridget Albert. Uh, uh, and that was, again, when right after we first met, um, I, you know, Bridget had moved to Chicago from Las Vegas. And of course, uh, for anybody who's listened to the show, uh, you know, if you listen to Tony and Tony Abuganum's show, uh, I've, I've heard a preview of Francesco's show, depending on when you're catching this show. So those early days where Las Vegas really was, you know, getting formulated by these incredible talents, um, which Bridget was a part of in opening the Bellagio, brought the idea of the Southern then uh, Wine and Spirits before the Glazers part, uh, Academy of Spirits that Francesco had started to Illinois. And with it brought uh, the USBG, the US Bartenders Guild. Um, so it made sense to me. Um, one thing I'd always recognized in the industry was having gone to business school as an undergrad, Georgetown Business School, uh, I saw the oft disconnects of good traditional business acumen in the hospitality business. Often in the hospitality business, there was either too much business, not enough hospitality, or vice versa. And there were a lot of things that were just stuck in the stone ages, but there were a lot of things about the hospitality part that other businesses should be able to understand that you just don't get unless you're put into that kind of relationship, I think, with your customers and your clients. So I loved bridging that gap. Uh, the USBG, as I started to meet people uh, who were a part of it, like Francesco, like Tony Abogannon, like Dale DeGroff, all thanks to Bridget, uh, Bobby G coming out from Las Vegas, um, and, and other early members like Ted Carducci, who I met uh, at the WCCUS finals that we hosted in Chicago. Um, I said, oh, these are fun, like-minded, incredible people that I want to get to know better. And I want to advance the industry and these opportunities that I see it could be advanced. I want to stop having people ask me behind the bar, you seem like a smart, fun person. What are you trying to do? Because nobody's trying to be a bartender. It's obviously a means to some other end. And I said, you know, I've tried other things and they didn't make me nearly as happy as the fact that I get to be here today talking to you and sharing the things I have a passion for. Every bottle behind this bar, putting together something from scratch that was not there until I built it into that glass and can tell you the origins and the histories of the drink and everything that went into it. I love that. And it made sense in my head. History was never my strength until I started being able to connect how alcohol was related to history. And usually there's a, a fair amount of alcohol around the history, which makes <laughs> the history a little blurry sometimes, but still. Um, and so, yeah, I just fell in love with the, the professional idea. And, and then I fell in love with the community. Uh, there were so many wonderful people. I always say that the industry, the hospitality industry is, is a hug, not a handshake. And <laughs> so true. It's just such a warm, welcoming place. And I remember a good friend, uh, Tony D, will say, out in San Francisco, got hurt on, um, on a bicycle coming home late at night. It's a typical story. We don't have health insurance in this industry. It is a huge problem. We are seeing those problems come to light today in, in a COVID-addled um, world that is destroying hospitality as we know it. It will be back, but as we know it today is, is being absolutely destroyed. Tony gets hurt. He has no safety net. Bartenders all across the U.S. got together and we, we sent him, I don't know, less than a thousand dollars from Chicago, but we had a little fundraiser at my store and sent this guy we'd never met a little money to help him get through. And, and it was all kind of around through that, that eventually the, the USBG National Charity Foundation that Bridget uh, was a founder of got started and the idea that we need to move the industry forward. And it continued to drive my participation in the Bartenders Guild from being a member to being very active uh, with Bridget as the president, the first president of the Chicago chapter running events, 
and and productions on behalf and using my contacts around Chicago to to bring you know uh, to USBG functions. And eventually um, met David Nepov, who became the national president from Livio Lorio. Um, David and I hit it off. He said, I've got some opportunities for you and you know, various things as Bridget joined the national board and, and the national board changed a few different times, but we formed a, a board of directors in 2013. And I went from being a leadership helper, which didn't really have a title, but went to being on the first modern day nine person board of directors for the guild as ratified in 2013 in Austin. And went from being a board a regional vice president was my role back then to being the national uh, executive vice president, and then in 2016 in those elections coming right off of another national election in the U.S. that uh, was not taken well uh, by many, uh, taken very well by some. It is what it is. Um, the USBG had a new election and. Um, a new president was elected uh, that was not David, and that president didn't have a lot of experience running the organization. So they split the role of board chair and president, the two different things. So I became the chairman of the board in 2017. And then eventually uh, that president stepped down uh, a few years later, and I was then made president as well as board chair. So I've been national president uh, for the last two and a half years, I guess, and, and board chair for about four. Uh, yeah, your career is pretty amazing, and you've done some wondrous things within the USBG with your time there. Um, what is what is some of your your favorite things you know about our industry? What really drives you? Well, that camaraderie uh, for sure that we talked about, just the the personability. Um, I, I I myself had some health issues that sprung up, gosh, a month before mm -hmm. I got married in two thousand and nine. And uh, I felt uh, very typical. We're recording this uh, right before Christmas time uh, in uh, in 2020, and um, I felt like Jimmy Stewart uh, I, uh, there uh, back in October of 2009, because when I had these health issues, I had you know 20 plus thousand dollars of hospital debt. I had no backup. I had no safety net. In, uh, independent entrepreneur. And uh, people all, I'm getting a little misty. I'm getting a little choked mm. up talking about it. But people all over the world uh, showed up and people I'd never met. And it was kind of like we'd done for Tony, but even on a larger scale, yeah. um, Tales of the Cocktail, you know, consultants all over the world, brands all over the world found ways to legally, you know, support and, and pay those debts off. I, I ended up not having any hospital bill um, because of the generosity of everybody um, that came forward and, uh, and I'll, I will always be a servant of the industry because I'll always be in debt for that. And I don't mean financial, but I mean the care that this industry provides its members, especially those who are good to it, the industry will take uh, care of you one way or yeah. the other. It's, it's such a fascinating, amazing story, Kyle. And we appreciate you so much for sharing that. And it's, and I think that's, that's why we all love this industry so much and it should get the respect that it deserves because not only is it hospitable community you really feel like family and everybody takes care of each other but it's also so entrepreneurial i mean the smartest people i know are from the hospitality industry you know not only just how to run business but how to interact how to make people happy how to produce results you cannot be successful in this business without results and it just it makes me, it, it's just so crazy that as an industry, we're not taken seriously, right? We don't, 
Um, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now and our industry it's hit the hardest. We are the second largest employer in the country and yet we've got no support. You know, it's just unbelievable. And the fact that you're riding to work and you get hit by a car and you don't have insurance. And I think that's why so many of us in the industry have become so committed to taking care of each other because if we don't, nobody's gonna be there to do it. That's right. Um, and it is terrifying and ridiculous. And I think there's a number of reasons for it, unfortunately. And I see a lot of the, the social media sphere you know, looking at airlines, do airlines need a bailout or do the, you know, the, the 12 million plus hospitality uh, affected workers in the country need a bailout? And the answer is, well, everybody does, but nobody has ever looked to bail out the hospitality industry and it's never been hit so hard in the last 100 years um, since the Spanish flu pandemic that, uh, that we've had to come back from this or, or prohibition. But even that was a completely different story than what we're facing. So there's reasons for it. I think the USBG is is uniquely placed uh, from a non not for profit perspective to help rebuild our industry in a way that is more sustainable, or at least to help host the conversations that are going to be necessary. Because there's going to be a lot of new, uncomfortable conversations. You know, it can't go back to the broken model that hospitality was before this with tipped minimum, you know, exceptions uh, across the country, making less than an already low minimum wage. Um, but there also has to be talk about food costs and menu pricing and the expectations of diners who have not seen the price of meals escalate nearly to the point that the costs of food, the costs of labor, and how to take care of your staff, front of the house, back of the house, and uh, the crazy increases in rent and real estate that have affected these locations too, that have a preposterous cost of build out with hoods mm -hmm. and HVAC and refrigeration and walk-ins and reach-ins and upkeep on all of that. It's, it's a model that has needed to be re rebuilt and this is the opportune time to do it. There's gonna be a lot of soul searching. There's gonna be a lot of introspection, I think, to do it right. But the, the community, the partnerships that we have across um, beer, wine, alcohol, non-alc purveyors and suppliers, our distributor partners, our food partners. Um, and th there's a lot of very talented, very smart people who love going to bars and restaurants that I think, you know, are going to need to also help everybody reinvent hospitality, you know, for 2021 and beyond. Yeah, I don't know when we're going to bounce back, you know, um, from this pandemic and I keep putting it on social media as well. Like we need a bailout. Um, we desperately need a bailout. Nothing infuriated me more when my daughter was coming back from Florida and it was during the pandemic and the flight was completely sold out and she's in the middle seat on a sold out plane ride. You know, it's a good two hour, two hour, maybe two and a half hours, whatever it is to, from Florida to Chicago. And yet you know, restaurants, you, you can't walk in the door. It's just, um, it's beyond ridiculous at this point. And it's very political. Yeah, we, we, it's just that we're, we're not as organized as we could be. And the, the groups that could be organizing hospitality, it's, is it the National Restaurant Association? Is it the U.S. Bartenders Guild? Is it the uh, uh, Wine and Spirits Wholesalers? I mean, all of these different entities really have a vested interest in seeing hospitality protected 
and represented in mm -hmm. the way that the numbers, the tax rates, right? The contributions to the tax base that hospitality offers the entire United States, let alone the employment that it offers. And the, the employment that it offers, the other thing that makes our community so unique is that it's very forgiving. How many applications do we know in professional space that when you check that box that says, um, I declared bankruptcy mm -hmm. and legally have to say that on this application or, or I made a mistake as a mm -hmm. 17 year old dummy and uh, was around the wrong people and I got, you know, and the wrong thing happened. And, and maybe it was because of the color of my skin and maybe it was because of, you know, other things that I had absolutely no fault of my own, but now I have this record or something that happened in my past that makes me very limited in some of the employment things that I can follow. Hospitality has always had its doors open for immigrants, for people whose English was not their first language for people who maybe had some mistakes, but are ready to, you know, go out and work hard and make a living for themselves that their home is hospitality. And, uh, and um, we need to continue to find ways for that to be true, to be that welcoming space professionally, as well as to our customers. And in a way that we can unify our voice to defend and support those efforts moving forward and keep it to be that inclusive, diverse, equitable space that, you know, can always do better at belonging, um, but has been one of the best centers of belonging, I would argue, of any industry in the world. Yeah, what 100%, you know, I mean, I think that with this pandemic, we're really realizing how much the restaurant industry and the hospitality industry has built our communities and how big of a role they play in our communities, not just serving you know, the guests, but the, the people that work in the, in the industry, right? The second largest employer. And the problem is, is that the government, uh, people don't take it seriously because we are very fragmented, you know, to your point, we've got, yeah, we have a lot of champions. We have a lot of different organizations and we not, all know it's important, but we're not going in as one massive unified second largest employer in the country voice and how much do we contribute to taxes and then what are what are all those domino effects right with with what happens it's not just about the restaurant it's about the purveyors yeah. the farmers. farmers i mean we impact everybody and you know i was on this um webinar i think it was through the the new york restaurant alliance but um Camilla Marcus spoke, and it was just incredible hearing her point of view on, you know, the fact that you can go in and, and really restart your career and have a very successful career in the restaurant industry where they're not going to judge you by your credentials or what mm -hmm. school you went to, or if you have a degree or not, you have an opportunity. If you're an immigrant and don't know the language, there's always something to do. And, you know, I know that, um, there's the Restaurants Act that has bipartisan support from every level of Congress. Why is it not going through? You know, I think anybody listening today, and I think that's what it's going to take is our community and every single person that touches restaurants in some way need to go on and reach out to their Congress people and say, this is important. We need this. Otherwise, we're going to keep getting bypassed and pushed over and half of our industry will be gone, you know, and that's, that's optimistic. 
Absolutely. And, you know, something will fill that void, something will come back, but how much damage and how many families and how many individuals will have to face, you know, the brink of desolation for that to be true. The whole idea is to mitigate that damage as best we can and to keep these, these career professionals, you know, really aimed uh, at getting back on their feet as quickly as possible. And yeah, it's, I think part of it, and Julie, you know, you, 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 you phrased it really well. And I've been thinking about it just as we've been talking here. If you're doing hospitality, right, it's seamless. You don't see the Aussie man behind or woman behind the curtain that's pulling the strings, right? This, so that you don't even understand how much goes on back of house, how much goes on that restaurants open 16 hours a day. There is somebody there 20 to 24 hours a day to make that space work. And and I and your point of it's touching farmers, it's touching all kinds of craftspeople. Um, it's touching so many different people, this huge second largest employer and all of the dominoes and connections of web that it, uh, that it runs in order to run efficiently and smoothly. People, I, it's always the big joke, right? That, oh, I'm a banker, I have some money. I wanna get in the restaurant business. I wanna get in the bar business. But right. you don't know anything about our business. The, the mm-hmm. audacity of you've been successful at your industry, you know how to do mine. Um, is always so shocking. And like the whole magic is you don't know because I Mm -hmm. don't let you see what goes on behind the curtain. And to be honest, I don't know what goes on in your boardroom either half of the time, but the schools for what you do are available in a way that the schools for what we do are experience. Yep. You're absolutely right. I mean, you talk about street credibility. I mean, it's right there. You know, you, the most successful restaurant tours in our country, you know, they, that's all that they know and what they love to do. And it's typically in their bloodline, you know, as well. It's not something that always comes with an accreditation or a college credit. It comes with experience. And you just said something that, um, that really made me take notice that, you know, that yes, it is like there is an Oz behind the screen because what it becomes is a dance. It becomes a flow and it becomes a vibe that your heart and your feet and your body and your mind completely just, just groove to when you're, you know, when you're in sync with everyone that's working around you and it's a real thing. It is a real feeling. And for those of you in the industry know exactly what I'm talking about when you're behind the bar and you're in the weeds, but you know what? You're not sweating it because you know that your bar back has your back. You know that your cocktail servers are doing their, you know, doing their, their thing. And you know that the line cooks are getting that food out quickly and it all works together, but it is a production is what it is. And it is absolute magic when it, it works. A hundred percent, you know, and, and somebody I've grown up in the restaurant industry. My mother had a restaurant. Um, it is the hardest job. You know, I was an underage worker <laughs> helping my mom working, working, working. And, and, you know, as restaurant owners, you can't leave. I mean, I'm in Miami. I see restaurants open and close all the time. I've been in this business here for over 12 years. You see them open, you see them close. And Kyle, it's to your point, no amount of money can create a successful restaurant. And I've seen it so much. You get all this money, whether it's being, you know, um, 
brought in through Latin America or, or through other countries and they hire their first staff, they spend millions of dollars making it super nice. And guess what? Six months closed. And that's because they don't have the loyal staff and you have to have the owners, you have to have the key stakeholders that are in the restaurant day and night. And I told my mom, when I grow up, I'm never going to have a restaurant because you don't get a day off. You never get to stop. And we work so much, but guess what? Once I became an adult, my best times in my childhood and my life was being at the restaurant with my mom and working those late nights. And I think that, um, you know, and then going outside of the family restaurant and working in different restaurants and fine dining and, and casual dining, you learn that the best server, and I think this is back to your point, Kyle, it kind of summarizes our industry is the best server is the one that is unheard and unseen, but they get you everything you want when you need it, right? I mean, you almost want to be invisible, but they don't even have to look up and look for you, right? So then in, you know, it, it, in, in our, you know, to our demise, that's kind of what's happening now, right? It's like, we're unheard, we're unseen because now it's COVID and oh, forget it. I don't need to go out to eat. I'll just go to the grocery store and oh gosh, you know, the worst thing, my biggest problem is now I have to cook every day, you know, and you forget about the fact that you had all of this and now it's gone and all these people have lost and behind that quiet service are multiple people that rely on that bill, you know, and on that check. And margins were already razor thin again, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the, the, yep lack of ability or the lack of the industry to correct itself in a lot of cases. This is not true of all operators, but for so many operators, unless you're working, you know, with multiple locations and able to take the tiny little bit of margin, you're able to eke after food cost, after employment cost. Um, and again, employment cost is too low. There's no insurance. There's no true minimum wage, let alone living wage. And it's still as a, as a business owner, you are worried every single day. You're worried sick. Um, and, and something like this, uh, oh, y- your internal seating has gone away. You're at 25%, 50% capacity. It's hard when it's you're at joke. 100% capacity, yeah. let alone. Yeah. And you're seeing the intelligence, Julie, that you talked about. You're seeing the ingenuity, the hardworking uh, nature of hospitalitarians in the amazing pivots that people have made to making food that was never meant to go, go and making it as good as possible. I mean, the innovation of good to go food that will come out of this is, is unheralded. We're seeing some, thank gosh, some legal recourse that we can do some cocktails to go and some drinks to go out of our hospitality spots, our liquor licensee spots, which is keeping something afloat better than nothing. And it's fun. And there's innovation to that. And you're seeing James Beard award-winning locations doing to go food and doing it in a way we've never seen that these times to, to put a positive spin on a horrible uh, pandemic, these times breed evolution and innovation, unlike mm-hmm. any other time of a rapid uh, nature. If you like it or not, you are going to evolve. You can see the meteorite coming for the dinosaurs. It has landed, the dust has risen, and a new form of life will evolve from this. And some dinosaurs will not make it. They, they will not be able to evolve fast enough, but the industry will come back. It just needs to come back in a way that's more sustainable and that's better than ever before. 
And it needs the leadership to step up and, and be able to do that together, you know, arms linked and not separated. Yeah, absolutely. I think that our, our industry is incredibly uh, passionate about um, our craft, about hospitality and very scrappy. I mean, I always, that's like my favorite word to really to describe our industry. We are, we're scrappy, you know, we're all about pulling up our bootstraps and getting to work. You know, one, one anecdote, it makes me think of, um, um, Josh Harris out in San Francisco and, and, Mm -hmm. and team over the years with the Bon Vivants, you know, have done a charity effect at Tales of the Cocktail for years, um, that, uh, is incredible. And, uh, you know, I've had teams been on teams for years that went to support that effort where often they were helping revitalize a school that was, uh, that needed help in, in new Orleans. And, um, I remember uh, them telling a story uh, one year that uh, <laughs> this group of tales of the cocktail attendees showed up to work on the school and they gave them the normal amount of work that they would give to a volunteer group that would come from a church or, you know, wherever a volunteer group may come from. Mm-hmm. And this group of tales attendees, you know, of all stripes had that amount of volunteer work done before lunch. <laughs> because that's the kind of work ethic that like, show me and literally sleeves rolled up, mm-hmm. show me what you got and watch us bang this out. I mean, those things that are just culturally intrinsic to hospitality. Um, we're, we're going to service, service is starting the rush, mm-hmm. that sense of a beehive, an ant colony, this functioning body of, if we all do our jobs well and focused, this thing is a symphony. And if we don't, it is a train wreck and we crash, we burn, we're in the weeds. We have all these, these terminologies for good service and and bad service. Mm -hmm. And um, again, uh, you said it earlier, Bridget, there's very few things that I've ever come across in this world that epitomizes that buzz of Mm -hmm. activity of that machine, that computer working, uh, you know, with all cylinders firing. There's so many different metaphors to draw into it. Rowing a crew boat was like that. We, we won a, a, a small college championship and, and we won it by 13 lengths. I mean, it was unheard of, which in a crew is a thing, but it was, that was the perfect row. We had a perfect row and everybody mm-hmm. was in sync. The boat was light as air and we just sailed across the water. And that's what a great service feels like. Yeah. The opposite is true when you have a bad service. Yeah, the opposite. And sometimes is that happens. And it happens. Get, you it know. But that's you just the deal with it and you overcome it, you know, and it makes you stronger. It makes you better. And, you know, it's never a perfect picture, but it's true. It's that, it's that grit. It's that agility, right? All these terms that these businesses are talking about is, oh, to be a great leader, you need to have empathy. To be a great leader, you need to be agile. These are all these new, cool terms that business, and we're like, that's what we've been doing. All yeah, these always, years in hospitality. Always. That's Hundreds like your day to day, right? Of years. Yeah. Pivoting, agile you know, working together, collaborating, uh, collaborating, you know, and and that's kind of what I think with COVID and what you mentioned and and all these different restaurants and James Beard restaurants doing to-go programs and cocktails to go and, and that's great. And all of our, you know, distributors, us, you know, Southern Glazers and, and suppliers really 
partnering in a, in a resourceful way to make sure that our restaurants can continue to do business. We need, they're our lifeline as well, right? Like we have to work together and you've seen the different restaurants come together and collaborate. I mean, I love seeing these like, um, you know, Jim Beam and Maker's Mark had a crawl in New York City and they got a bunch of different restaurants to, to get on this bourbon trail map and, you know, and everybody's really working together. And, and I think that it's really a connected community. And one of the things, again, and I'm going to mention her because I took so many notes from her uh, webinar, Camilla Marcus mentioned, you know, the problem is that government is old school. And I like that she said that. You know, mm-hmm. they're very old school way of thinking. And hopefully with this, with this new term, we're going to become more new school because we have a lot of catching up to do. We think that our industry is slow. I think it's the government that's slow and they need to get on board and understand that an industry is not just one collective lobby group that have a ton of funding to get laws passed. It's actually an industry consists of people and families that pay their taxes and work every single day. Nobody's looking for a free ride or extra money. They're just looking for survival, survival and the money that they've been paying in taxes because they have been working actually coming back and servicing them as well. You know, and I think, I am going to plug it restaurantsact.com listeners get on there. It's so easy because it pops up and says, email your lawmakers, you click it. And guess what? You don't even have to write an email. It does it all for you. And it goes to exactly who your lawmakers are. And I did it and I got responses. They seemed a little bit canned, but at least they got my email and we need to do that. Preach. Yeah. It's, (laughs) That's how change gets made, you know, and, and it's, it's, there's a lot of dichotomy, dichotomies about this industry. And one of them is a lot of people join hospitality because they don't fit into the rote script of professionalism that other people do. Like they just don't feel comfortable in an office setting, in a desk setting, you know, at a computer screen. Now everybody's at a computer screen right now, one way or the other, it seems like uh, all too often, but, um, but so there is often something we've identified within the guild to this, this mistrust of power structures or, you know, the, the traditional things are not for me. And so um, trying to find unification within those efforts. And, you know, earlier, it may have sounded like uh, in some way I was uh, saying schooling wasn't right. It's a combination of experience and education mm-hmm. and constant development of both theoretical and practical, uh, you know, real world experience that drives every industry forward. You can't just book, learn everything. And you, you shouldn't just do everything by experience too. There's so much to be learning, especially in times of rapid evolution and expansion and change like right now there's so much that can be gleaned it's it's information overload actually mm-hmm. but if you can if you can turn the the fire hose down to fill up a glass of knowledge shall we say uh, or two there's there's a lot of never ha- before has there been so much information available to help you become a better professional to help inform your business efforts there are so many support organizations to be a part of and again, for this industry, I think overall, it's just a bit behind the times of how powerful the airline lobby, let's say, is, how, how powerful some of these other voices have become. 
And um, it's, it's time that we take our place, that we've got, to your point, Julie, not only do we have the intelligence that is a part of this industry, you know, it's time to take that uh, sense of belonging that we can and should belong. There should be a place that we feel comfortable to have a seat at the table, to use mm-hmm. some of the, the modern parlance and, and do so collectively and put aside some of our individual interests for the common good, which is a challenge, always a challenge, especially when people are hurting. Yeah. Especially right now, you know, when things are looking very bleak, you know, for so many, it's hard to kind of, I think what you're saying is, you know, lean in and come together and, and, but, but we have to do it. I mean, we're not going to survive in silos. No, hundred percent. And, you know, a, a thought that I just had when we think of the impact that the restaurants have. And what really frustrates me is that when you see some of the government officials and, and the governors and, and making these big decisions, I get it. You know, they, they have very tough jobs right now. I mean, you know, I, I can ridicule government employees, but, you know, bless them for, for taking on that job as well. But, you know, sometimes they think about restaurants that it's a luxury um, service, right? Well, oh gosh, the wealthy people that can afford to eat out every night don't have a restaurant. They have to cook for themselves, but it's not about that. It's about the workers. And I was recently on a um, kind of a parent teacher's talk with the superintendent of the Miami-Dade County schools, because I'm we're, we're looking for new options for our son going into the new school year and just listening. And, and I guess I've been very oblivious to this because my son, you know, he's privileged. We have him at a private school. He's able to go to school. Everybody's fine. We're doing fun things and events and whatnot. And, and another piece that I really understood or what, what you find out is that there are children not even showing up for school right now, even if they're on the online program, they're literally missing. And our school systems have such a big play in um, keeping our children safe, right? Because they have to show up for school. Otherwise, you're going to have social services knock on your doors. And now there's this pandemic. Well, just talking with you and talking through all of this, it's how many of those children are restaurant employees that don't have a job? Many, 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 right? I know so many of my restaurant employee communities that have families. Now they don't have jobs. What are their kids doing? This is an impact so much further than people's pockets, you know? I mean, it's it's children. And then, you know, and then the other piece of it that they brought up on this other webinar too is the fact that restaurants play a big role in the safety of our streets, mm-hmm. you know, in our big city. Yeah. Seattle, Chicago, New York City, huge cities, restaurants keep the street lights on and it makes it safe, right? Whether you have your vendor delivering stuff at five o'clock in the morning and getting people off the streets or the lights on. And um, with restaurants closing and closing at 10 o'clock with the curfews, the streets are dark and we're in like a whole nother universe right now. I talked to my cousin in Seattle. He's like, Julie, you wouldn't even recognize it. You know, he's like, it is like skid row 19, whatever year that was when Seattle was like full on skid row. And um, the government needs to recognize that, you know, it's, it's bigger than just somebody being able to go out to eat and have a, a nice dinner. 
No, I mean, it affects families. Like you said, it affects children. It affects um, so many parts of our everyday life or safety. And uh, the fact that the help has not arrived and we're almost a year into this is shameful. It is absolutely shameful. Well, and I think the, and I won't, uh, I won't get into this bee's nest uh, too deeply, but the thing that we're getting to though, is how is this affecting not the safety of our kids, the mental and emotional health of the workers, Mm -hmm. of their families. And if those who are able to work, the few that are able to go to work, I don't know how many of my friends have been uh, and colleagues have been then sent home COVID positive or yep. because the restaurant had a COVID case and then another and then another and the startup costs that go in behind all that and the mental anguish of schools are closed. And again, I'm not demonizing the choice to, to close schools. We've got to figure out a way to do this. And it's there's a lot of hard decisions. Thankfully, in my household, we're both still employed. We were able to pivot to 100% digital work from home. Um, but the kids are 100% at home too. And we we can't get childcare to come in safely. So we're the ones who are lucky enough to do that. What about the hospitality workers who can go to work and there's no school for their kids to go to? I mean, and then how does that weigh on you? How do you sleep at night with all of these things going on? It's, there are, and there's, even with telehealth and the things that we have, as we come back, right, to to go back to the positive, as we start to rebuild, because we're the virus uh, vaccines are going out, and the, there's there's some light at the end of a very dark, very scary tunnel still to come for the first half of 2021 at least. But as we start to rebuild, how do we get the kind of emotional and mental health and physical health resources to the people who have been historically challenged by them, let alone mm-hmm. the future? And how do we make that equitable as well? Because we nothing has exposed the disparity in the way that classism and economic classism is affecting everybody. And there are so many permutations to that, right? It is, there's relations to race, there's relations to gender, there's relations to sexuality, there's relations to ageism. There, there are so many things that are being laid bare by, as, as, as tragedies, as, as things like this will do, these t- uh, tectonic shifts in culture that the pandemic is bringing. So thankfully, again, looking positive, there are some spotlights that we're able to take with this strange global breath that we have this year to look at how do we continue to do better about gender bias and age bias and sexuality bias and race bias. And how do we truly rebuild in a way that as we see lights in all the corners of the disparity of access to healthcare and to food and to uh, education and all of it. How do we rebuild it in a way that will truly be more inclusive, equitable, and diverse? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where all, every individual is tasked with bringing that to life in their sphere of influence. Absolutely. And really to be a true reflection of the community, of the world community, right? Yeah. And, and it I- starts in places like this, like ours. Um, we're it, part of the conversation earlier made me think what I, what I have always loved about this industry, you know, I've been very fortunate 
that I have been successful. I've worked hard. I have a bent for the industry. I have met amazing people who have helped me and, and mentored me. Um, one of them is on this call. <laughs> and, um, and going across the world and being part of the International Bartenders Association, which my, my role at the USBG has given me some access to, bartender is a language spoken internationally. You don't have to speak English or French or, or Italian or et cetera. Uh, to go out and know exactly how to work behind a bar with someone and get that sense of fluidity and feel and grace. And even if you don't speak the same language, there is a feeling of camaraderie that comes from facing service on a daily basis and taking care of people and being a mm -hmm. hospitalitarian that is truly universal. And I think the fact that it is a global industry and that it does look at, on, the, on the street, right? At the point of delivery, it's man, woman, and child of all ages, of all races, ethnicities, uh, orientations. It is the true melting pot. And we just need to continue to break down the barriers that have, uh, that have prevented historically everybody from rising equally in that melting pot as we rebuild it. And hospitality can lead that way, I think, unlike any other global industry, which is exciting. That's my silver lining as we come out of this is to keep driving our organizations forward towards that goal. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you said it, you know, when we opened up is, is something that has led to your success is the way to bridge the business acumen with the hospitality. Right. And, and I think the hospitality really is that grit. It's that ambition. It's that drive. It's those things you can't teach. You it's either have it or, or you, you don't. don't. <laughs> And then when you can tie that with business acumen and knowing how to maximize the system and, and, and really leverage knowledge and, and all of that, then you just flourish, right? And I think that that's what we need to do as an industry. There's a lot of work to be done. And, you know, I, I do want to recognize that as we have people that are out of work and, and struggling and, and maybe some were able to receive their stimulus checks, you know, that they got at one point and it looks like there's going to be another one. The people that are truly left behind are the undocumented workers. Yes. And yes. It's, yes. it's so heartbreaking um, that we are an industry that have many undocumented workers. And I know it's untalked about because you're not supposed to do that. And you should be documented and you should be a legal immigrant. But guess what? These people are some of the best people. They work every single day and they do the work that nobody else wants to do because they think they're above it, right? right. People want and need the money every single day to take care of their family and their children. And as we get government assistance, whether it's stimulus in one way or another, they're getting nothing and it is heartbreaking and they need to be, they need voices as well. Um, they're a big part of the community and they only add value. Well, they only add value, but they're also the backbone of our whole, of, of hospitality, yeah. right? Without down the, to the farmers, down, down to the farmers. I mean, again, like if we're, if we're going to sing or if we're going to play like an orchestra, like Kyle so eloquently said, it's everyone counts without equally, equally without, without one position, you know, the others don't make sense and they won't work in harmony. We all have to work together. 
and we all have to hold each other up during this time and do whatever we can do for those families, for people that just want to work. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and know that they can come find, you know, it's the American dream was to mm-hmm. come to America and make a better life. Right. And to not, to not face some of the challenges that other countries face. And I, and arguably we've created our own challenges here that are as bad, if not worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, we've waged war on the American dream internally. Um, and that needs to be rectified. And we need to start by finding ways and in our industry is, is exactly right. It only works when everybody Mm-hmm. is is supported and has what they need to be successful for that for that system for that dynamic for that beehive to work and recognizing those contributions and paying living wages in order for those to work and it's okay to have entry level jobs with entry level wages and then mm-hmm. it's okay to to reward those who are some of the best at what they do and 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 be as equitable with that again across color creed orientation age etc um it's a heavy lift, you know, and mm-hmm. it's not, it's not just our industry, but uh, I think we're uniquely placed. And I think overall, minus a few gatekeepers who, as always, if you, if you hold the keys to the gates, you don't tend to want to hand them off lightly, but um, it doesn't mean you can't build uh, better gates. It doesn't mean you can't expand walls and bring more people inside. And, and I think that's, you know, where we always need to be focused is how do we, it, we, I, I think you both said it great. How do we continue to be more inclusive, more thoughtful of the entire paradigm and keep that American dream alive? You can come here and not even have a firm grasp on the language yet, but you can get to work. You can do work that a lot of folks may not choose to do. You can be proud of that work. You can work with a team and in a place that has, it's a true meritocracy. You know, Mm -hmm. when you're a part of that hospitality environment, good workers and not so good workers stand out like sore thumbs. Oh my goodness. They really do. <laughs> and yeah. nobody cares what mm-hmm. you look like, how old you mm-hmm. are, what your deal is. Can you get the shift done and make it an easier lift for everybody? If so, welcome to the team. If That's not right. shape up or get out. Yep. It's hundred um, percent. The cream rises to the top, and um, and it's also that's what I love about this industry. You know, is that I work really hard. I do what I say I'm going to do, and I, you know, I say what I'm going to do, and you get rewarded quickly, and you're able to move up. And I think that's um, one of the most incredible things about this business. And there's a lot of varieties. You never get bored. You know, you switch it up all the time. Um, but I do want us to talk about and and you did briefly uh, mention it is the the USBG foundation and I think we'd be remiss not to mention all the work that the bartender emergency assistance program provided to so many people and I know Bridget now Bridget and I you know Bridget did a lot more and I know in the beginning I was uh, you know definitely gave my time and and vetting a lot of these applications and I can tell you it brought COVID real close to home reading some of these applications and the people that were in need right when COVID hit in March, April. And, and did, we thought it might be like a one month, two month thing. They would just need, you know, paychecks to cover them for a couple months and look where we are now, you know? So could you kind of tell everybody what this fund does, where they can support, how they can get on and who does it help, right? It's not just the bartenders. 
No, uh, absolutely. Uh, again, uh, this is a this could be an hour for me uh, all by itself. I will try to keep it brief, but uh, but complete. Yeah, I think we're gonna have to book another hour to dive I, I think into so it too. more. But we we've <laughs> got to put it in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To to get the plug in, I mean, to your point, Julie, the, it's not like anything has gone away. Um, incredibly, the USBG National Charity Foundation, the NCF, and it can be found on social media, USBG NCF. Uh, wherever your social media is sold or given to you in exchange for all your information, however you want to look at it, <laughs> um, did a pivot that is unheralded. I mean, it went from taking maybe five applications on a busiest month uh, in its history. And, and the BEAP, the Bartender Emergency Assistance Program, has been around for years and has handled several different tragedies. Hurricane Harvey is what took us from doing individual grants to really looking at a community and being able to swoop in and have partners be able to support a community affected by a disaster. Um, right as COVID hit, Nashville was hit by this huge tornado and the NCF was able to form not only a campaign for uh, for COVID relief, but also for tornado relief. And, and people were able to access two different funds as needed because they were hit doubly hard. Right. So um, the NCF, thanks to the work of 500 plus volunteers putting in over 10,000 hours of volunteer time, were able to scale uh, from around five a month on a busy month to uh, 60 applications per minute coming in for days at a time, 60 per minute. So um, you know, well over 60,000 applications that came in. Now, no, those weren't all, some were duplicates and some, you know, some were, were not complete. And, but nonetheless, they all had to be evaluated. Over 60,000 applications came in and, and that's over the course of 60 days. Within 45 days, this 501c3 organization was able to, with one and a half full-time employee, was able to borrow resources from the USBG, the guild side, which is a 501c6, different entities related. Um, definitely because of that relationship, we were able to shift resources from the guild who didn't have an on-premise to support as things closed down and dedicate dedicated staff time, leadership time, strategic time to building an infrastructure that would get payments uh, from a fund that was generously supported by so many different partners, individuals uh, to global corporations into people's hands within 45 days, safely, securely, information being protected, bank accounts being protected. The amount of fraud attempts that we saw in applications, but in computer hacks, trying to get into our application system, trying to access our payment gateways. We've never seen that level of fraud. And that's what happens in chaos is fraudsters come out in force to try to take advantage of the chaos for their own benefit. It's reprehensible. So we had to do things safely and securely. And what happened was the NCF was able to give over $10 million in cash relief as best it could through the work of all of these volunteers um, within uh, starting 45 days out and by 90 days, almost every dollar that had been donated uh, for COVID relief was in the hands of somebody who needed it in up to $500 increments. I think the, the lowest was 150 and up to five because it was something, it was something that, that the organization could give to help somebody through. But now, I mean, again, those dollars have generally dried up. Where are more dollars going to come from in a pandemic? That's hard to say. Has the need dried up? No, it's it's arguably as bad as it's ever been. Um, it's worse. 
and, 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 and worse in so many ways it's worse. Mm -hmm. So the need is there. People can go to um, uh, usbgfoundation.org and all the information for giving is there. It is a 501c3. It is tax deductible. It's almost uh, the end of the 2019 tax season. So uh, there is a big push right now uh, on the foundation side. Again, I am on the board of, uh, I'm the chairman and the president of the guild. I am not currently a part of the foundation, but uh, we support it and its works. Um, and, uh, and so anybody who, who has the ability at this time of giving, um, there is a tax, uh, tax, uh, free tax benefit uh, to being able to go to usbg.foundation.org and, um, and share and help somebody who really needs that help. But one other thing that I noticed, you know, through that process and to your point, Julie, if you were reading, I, I, I was so busy trying to help keep our system afloat that I could, I didn't have the emotional bandwidth to continue to screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was too busy on infrastructure and it took too much out of me to hear about people with real need. And we definitely faced some interesting backlash in the community of people mistrustful of systems who were attacking the work of all of these volunteers and this organization and the sponsors. And they're like, if you were reading these stories, if you knew, if you only knew, if you only knew, and, you and it, only because you knew. may not personally know somebody who got one of the 30,000 uh, um, um, grants that were issued for the 12 million people in hospitality, because it's anybody who, uh, per the guidelines of the foundation, which are all available on, on the website, but to paraphrase them, uh, bartenders, bar servers, anybody involved in the distribution of drinks and legally required not uh, a member of any group, including the USBG. It's open mm-hmm. to anyone Everybody. Mm-hmm. involved in the distribution of drinks, which is important that we're supporting the community that way. But it made some members upset. They thought they should be prioritized. Mm-hmm. But it really, again, revealed some of the unrecognized privilege that a lot of people in our industry um, don't, even, don't even know they have. Because yeah, you don't know anybody who's in that desperate of need. Your social circle isn't that wide isn't that a point of privilege for you? And mm-hmm. instead of attacking volunteers in a charity where half of my job was just calling volunteers and our staff and saying, you're doing good work, you're doing great work, you're really truly helping people in a way that unemployment offices around the, the US were not able to do as quickly or as effectively and safely and securely. You're doing good work, keep it up. You're doing great work, keep it up. Um, don't listen to people who don't know the stories that you're reading and processing and how much we're helping a working mom with a COVID positive case in their house who is working not even paycheck to paycheck because the paychecks suck. Mm -hmm. They're working tip night to tip night and their tips went away and they have a health problem and there's COVID and again, they're, they're threatening to lose everything that they know of a livelihood and, um, and some of them have been committed to, you know, and I read some of these, they've been committed, they've been in their job for 12 years, 10 years, you know, they're not more. just yeah. fly by, oh, my last job. I mean, these are people that this is their career, this is their livelihood. And I just think, you know, it's, it's, um, it's incredible what the USBG um, Foundation has done for these people. And this is another note, if any of our listeners are have influence with the government or part of the government, this is another prime example of the fact that a local or an organization dedicated to 
our beverage professionals were able to provide a stimulus check way before the government sent one. Right. And, and I, and it's, uh, you know, I think that that's something so special and I hope that anybody that's listening, you know, will get on, um, will show their support if they have the ability to, um, you know, one of the things that I took away before is we're citizen eaters, right? The citizen eaters go out there, vote with your fork, get on the restaurantax.com, um, call your congressman. You can do it by clicking online. Uh, but one other thing that um, a Michelin star chef in New York, um, actually, you know, a Singaporean, uh, Chef uh, Salil Meta, you know, I loved what he said. He said, go out there and support your local businesses, mm-hmm. whatever it is. There's no money too small, even if it's a pack of gum at that local owned convenience yeah, shop yep. or a Bottega or whatever it is. And I love this quote because penny plus penny make many and never devalue one little effort step penny. That's right. And if any of our listeners had any issue with the USBG or how they conducted themselves um, through the givings and through their drive and through what they did, call me. (laughs) I'm serious. You can email me, you can call me and we'll talk. I'll make time. And we should talk, you know, and I think that that's really important. We are one community and we all need to work together to be taken seriously, right? Maybe we can't just have, you know, one massive organization where we can hire a lobby, but or a lobbyist to, to get what we need, but why not? If we all get together as the second largest employer, we have more employees than the federal government. We have the power. We just have to unite and align and not put each other down. Right. right. And, and, and we're all in it for the, for the same reason. We all have the same goal. Yep. Yep. Yeah, we all one, want to help each other. One one hundred percent, and that and that's that's a complex issue, right? It it requires transparency, and it requires the evaluation of your process to make sure that it is again inclusive of everyone. Um, and then you, you've got to build bridges to these other professionals, these other organizations. So that there's a process there, and not everybody is is suited for that kind of work, or even interested in mm-hmm. doing that kind of work. Right. Um, but, uh, but unless, until we make the decision to go out and spend those dollars locally, till we make the decision to be a part of the, uh, of the solution and contact our Congress people and support these NGOs and, you know, give where we can to charitable organizations that are trustworthy and, you know, are doing good work the right way. Um, you know, and, and it's never be afraid to ask questions and get the answers you're looking for. Um, that's important. It's more important than ever, again, because there's more charlatans out there uh, on all sides, but it shouldn't preclude you from trusting. It shouldn't preclude you from coming together and we need it now more than ever. Yeah, absolutely. And feedback is good, right? I mean, nobody's perfect, you know, especially when you're rolling something out and you've got, you know, quickly quickly and, and, and getting people, you know, funding within 45, there's deemed to be mistakes, right? Nobody's perfect. And feedback is always great because we always want to improve. It's about rigorous improvement and use your voice, right? And just like in the restaurants, we like the customers that complain because they come back and you have an opportunity to 
you know, to fix, create, it. to fix it and they come back. So it's so important that if there's something you don't like, talk about it and suggest improvements and we all improve together. Well, and that, that is one of the great uh, cognitive dissonances that I sometimes see Julie is if anybody knows how to deal with complaints or what a good complaint or good positive constructive feedback looks like, it's people in the restaurant and hospitality mm-hmm. business. If anybody Absolutely. knows what a bad complainer, what a bad piece of feedback or, or one that doesn't help, that doesn't move things forward, it's the hospitality business. And yep. sometimes I see hospitality professionals out there. Everything stinks. It just all stinks. Yes. Can you be a little clearer about what stinks and how, you know, so that I can help build ways to make it better. Exactly. But, um, they forget mm-hmm. some of those lessons sometimes that we learn in hospital. Yeah, absolutely. Kyle, what do you, what do you see for yourself um, five years from now? Ooh, uh, that's a good interview question uh, for, uh, are, are, we're not interviewing for a job, are we? Um, well, this is my, uh, this is currently my last year uh, in the, the chair in the president role, of USBG. Um, I, I have done, I've done my service for now in this format. I, I'm really proud of the work that the board has done that I've been able to help the organization do. I'm ready to help in a different way. I'm ready to get out of the way and let some new voices and some new leadership find ways to, uh, you know, to contribute a, a, a much needed different perspective than mine. And it'll help me refresh and it'll help me become a better contributor to the community as well with a, a shift in my own perspective in the way that I can help. So for me in five years, you know, I, I think our little craft company is, is growing very nicely. And I think, um, you know, I think we'll probably be at some kind of an inflection point probably by then, um, which will be interesting and fun to see. Um, I think my role within the USBG will always be one of, you know, helping where I can, which is what I've always tried to do and continuing to find ways in the community where, where I am, you know, increasingly uh, as the, I blame the gray hairs on my kids whenever possible, but as the hair continues to, to be more salt than pepper, you know, that there are ways that I can help teach that, that bridge between my 20 plus years in and around hospitality and that, my bent for structure and how to bridge the gap between, you know, theoretical or structural business acumen to, to hospitality. And I often make it the illusion that it's, it's like being a UN translator, right? I can speak hospitality. I can speak the inside lingo uh, to anybody who's ever been a part of the hospitality world, but I can also speak boardroom and talk about ROI and Q4, you know, for, uh, for O and D that those acronyms would be lost just like FOH, BOH, you know, 86 and the act, you know, the, the jargon of, of hospitality would be lost Mm -hmm. on others. So any place that I can help lighten the load for our industry to continue to professionalize and be taken seriously and, and, you know, get to the day where a bartender doesn't get asked, wow, or, or, or any hospitalitarian doesn't have to get asked. You seem really great. So why are you doing this job? Right. And the, you know, the ego that goes with it. We've come so far in Mm -hmm. 15 years. We really have. The respect of what we do as a craft has really elevated in a way that surprises me. And I remember Bridget, some of the earliest days, uh, probably with a drink in hand, I'd said, you know, for me, success is when you go to the corner bar, a pizza joint that has a bar and they make you a good fresh margarita. That's all I want. I don't need 20 ingredients. I don't need, you know, it, it's not going to be sustainable to have the incredible work that some of the most advanced mixology bars have in the world. What's going to be 
the true sea change is one of the largest industries in the world, getting paid a living wage, being happy and healthy at work, working realistic hours, working really hard for somewhat realistic hours for, uh, for a standard of living that is, that is acceptable um, and that allows you to have what you need, which is your loved ones and some personal time and some, some, uh, you know, some positivity and some fulfillment at work and to do what you do from an informed place good, fresh, well-made drink and a good plate of fresh food that supports the entire ecosystem of our, of our food uh, from, you know, again, plants in the ground through a, a drink and, uh, and a plate in somebody's hand. Um, I just want to continue to get us there. And, and the rainbow of people who are involved in that e- all having equal say in our destiny. Absolutely. Beautifully said. And, you know, I've known you for a long time, Kyle, and I don't know anybody that works as hard as you. I've worked events with you. I've bar backed with you for events for like no child hungry. We're just schlepping ice up and down steps. A lot of steps know, that one year. For that one year. Three stories of ice. But, but um, throughout the years, you've been very consistent with your vision, with your goal. And it's always been exactly what you just summed up. And that is to support the industry with every fiber of you. And you're, you're, you've done it and you continue to do it. And I, and I adore you for it. And I thank you for it. Thank you. Well, you're a big part of it. Uh, and Julie, I, I haven't known you as long, but um, again, no, I, yeah, good people I mean, attract good people. I, it, you know? They do. And I, and I just wanted to add, I still remember that day that, that we got to meet and that I got to meet you, Kyle, for the first time. And thank you to Bridget for making the introduction. And, and we had dinner in Chicago and I believe it might've been January of this year. And we had, it was our first meeting. And I think we just all connected. And I remember at that time I committed to you both that I am here to support this industry. And this was prior to COVID, prior to this racial um, injustice that's, that's really come out and taken you know, a, a hold of us as a country. And, and I had committed because I, know, I knew that I need to take a bigger part and make sure that, um, that it, this industry gets all the credit that it deserves and that it's sustainable long-term. And I am just so proud of the fact that we have been able to work together and we're here today sharing this story and getting it out there. And I thank you both so much. And you're, you're such a big part of my life and so happy to, to know you both. Well, thank you, Julie. Kyle, you know, Julie and I, we want to wish you such great health and so much peace and great success um, in the new year. Thank you so much for being on the show. We do hope that you'll come back. We know we're just scratching the surface. There's so much to, to talk about within the hospitality industry. So we do expect you to come back again and, and just thank you for, uh, for this time with us. It's been my sincere pleasure. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers! Cheers!